please, please turn with me to the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, and I'll be reading verses uh, 60 through 66. Verses 60 through 66. We'll give attention this morning to verses 61 through 65. But uh, John, the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, verses 60 through 66. All right. John, chapter 6, beginning at verse 60. Hear the word of God. Therefore, many of his disciples... When they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, therefore I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time on, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Amen. Last week, uh, when we looked at, we looked at this text last week, our, our focus really was on 60 and 61. And we saw that the issue, the reason that the people were complaining, the Jews were complaining, was because of hardness of heart. And this was a pattern that was established among these people from the Old Testament. And we took a look at the book of Isaiah, and we saw that the same thing had happened in their history. God sent people speaking strange tongues among them, tongues that they could not understand to judge them for their rebellious attitude. And here Jesus speaks to the people in imagery and in metaphors, and they cannot pierce the meaning of these things, even though Jesus is telling them frankly. Of course, the offense that they've taken at this point is that Jesus said to them, they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. And as we've looked at this chapter over and over again, Jesus uses this metaphorical language to speak about faith in him, believing in him, and what it means to believe in him. And as we saw a few weeks ago, the language of eating is used because it is personal and individual. Nobody can eat for you. Nobody can believe for you. And eating provides the sustenance, what we need, the the nourishment that we need to live. Believing in Jesus provides the spiritual uh, sustenance and nourishment that we need. It's when we believe in him that we have life. But now the Jews are offended. Now the Jews are offended. And there are three things I want to note from this passage. Now, picking up at verse 61. And the first is that we must live by faith and not by sight. 
We must live by faith and not by sight. The second is that Jesus' works, the things that he did in his ministry, his, his works, and his words, what he teaches, are impossible for the world to receive. And the third is that it is the Father that grants faith. The Father is the one who grants the right to believe. So those three things. Let's take a look at the first here. We must live by faith and not by sight. This is the point that Jesus is making here to these Jews. Look at verse 61. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? Now first note this. John does this regularly. He gives us a glimpse of the divine nature of Christ. And John doesn't, say, oh, uh, John, uh, John doesn't do it this way. John doesn't just say Jesus is God. He does that at the beginning of the gospel. But what he does is he puts on display particular attributes that only God has. And it is that Jesus knew what was in the heart of these men that are standing before him of the crowd, and why is it that they're complaining about what Jesus is doing? So in chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, John writes, but Jesus did not commit himself to them, to the people who wanted to come and make him their king, because he knew all men, and had no need of that any man should testify of him, for he knew what was in man. Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows what's in your heart. In Revelation chapter 22, 23, he is called the one who searches the minds and the hearts. And it is to him that each one of us will give an account for our works. We have to live in light of that reality. This is a, a biblical perspective on who Jesus is. In, in America, the perspective or the view that we have of Jesus is that he was just a really nice miracle worker. He was kind of like a, a Mediterranean shaman who, you know, he traveled around just healing people. And, you know, he was kind of like a hippie. He was very nice. Everybody liked him. And he did good things. But the picture that the New Testament gives us, that God gives us in the New Testament, is that He is the divine Son. He is God in the flesh. And He knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our inmost secrets. So you get that little glimpse there. Jesus knew in Himself that they were complaining. And then He says to them, Does this offend you? Is what I just said, that you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. Does this cause offense? And remember, in the same context, Jesus is repeatedly telling them what he means, is you must believe in me. When they ask the initial question of Christ, they ask him, what work must we work to work the works of God? He says, believe. Believe in the Son. And this word that he uses here is, is 
For offend is to cause a person to experience anger. Now, when we got in here this morning, it was really cold. Now, it's really warm in here. So please open those back doors. Don't fall asleep. Okay? I know it's warm. And, but that's human nature, right? You complain when it's cold and you'll complain when it's hot. So be happy. It's warm. I'll open the side doors. <laughs> uh, does this offend you? Does this cause you to, to be Why are you angry, Jesus is saying? Why is it that you are upset? Why are you shocked that I'm telling you that you must believe in me? What's the issue? Why, why are you so angry? If you've ever taken a crack at evangelism, it doesn't matter who it's with, family members, friends, that's the issue. When you tell them they must believe in Jesus. That's when they get offended. Now, depending on the person, they might do it passive-aggressively and stop talking to you, or they'll be very direct. Or somewhere in the middle. So does this offend you? This is the, this is, this is the issue. What Jesus' is teaching is it's offensive to the natural man. It, it, it is not easily received. Now, in Matthew 17, 27, Jesus uses the same word, this word offend. And the, the setting there is Peter is asking Jesus about the temple tax. Uh, should we pay the temple tax? Should we not pay the temple tax? And Jesus says, look, the son of the king has no need to pay for the temple tax. I don't have to pay the temple tax. But he says in verse 27, lest we offend them, we, lest we offend the people, Go fishing, you'll find a coin in a fish, take it out of the fish, use that to pay the temple tax. And this is, this is the way that these people felt. They felt a, sort of an, an offense at his person. It, it's the same thing in Matthew seventeen twenty seven. They would be offended if Jesus said to them, I don't need to pay the temple tax, I'm the son of God. And it's the same thing when he says to this group of Jews, you must believe in me. If you want to be right with God, it's the same offense, the same anger. Because of their hard and penitent hearts, they couldn't understand and would not receive Jesus' teaching. And ultimately, this is ultimately always the issue. It's an issue of an unwillingness to repent and believe what the Bible says. The issue is not an issue of, you know, if I just had one more fact. That's not it. It's not it at all. The issue is a heart issue. And this is what Jesus was dealing with the, Jewish, the Jews before him. The, the group that came from the 5,000 he had just fed at the beginning of the chapter. He's dealing with their heart He's saying to them, you must believe I am the Son of God who came down from heaven to die in your place for your sins. And they find that very offensive. Uh, 
But for the believer, it's completely the opposite. If you're sitting here today and that does not offend you, actually that's something that you've embraced wholeheartedly and you believe, listen to what Jesus says to John the Baptist. John the Baptist is in prison. He was a herald. He was the herald of the coming king. So John, but John wasn't divine. John wasn't omniscient. John didn't know all things. So John is preaching, the king is coming, the king is coming, repent. And then he finds himself in jail. <laughs> so he sends his disciples to Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, uh, and beginning at verse 2 uh, through verse 6. And they ask, are you the expected one? Are you the coming one? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus cites a, a mixture of texts. He cites Isaiah 29, 18, and Isaiah 35, 4 through 6. And he says this to John. Go, or to John's disciples. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is what the Messiah would do. So John the Baptist asks the question, are you the Messiah? And what Jesus does is he quotes scripture. He says, this is who I am, the person who God promised would do these things. So yes, I am the expected one. That's Jesus' point. And then Jesus adds this in verse six, and blessed is he who does not take offense at me. That's the person who's blessed. The person who reads what the Bible says about Jesus, about his person, about his work, and finds great comfort in knowing that this is my Redeemer. They don't set their heart on looking for another. There's no complaint. There's no argument with God, but they rest their soul completely upon the person and work of Christ. That is the Christian. That's the Christian disposition. If you are ashamed to be identified as a follower of Christ, and I don't mean as somebody who goes to church, right? Because I think we live in a country where going people kind of expect you to go to church, especially in areas like this, kind of rural areas. You know, if you don't go to church, you're some kind of devil worshiper to some people, you know? So I'm not talking about a person who goes to church. I mean somebody who is a follower of Jesus, would it cause you shock, for example, if the people you worked with knew that you believed that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's divine, He's 100% God, 100% man, that He was born of a virgin, that He lived a sinless life, that He literally died on the cross to bear the wrath of God, that he was buried, he rose from the grave with a resurrected body and ascended into heaven, and now somewhere in heaven, wherever that might be, there is a man up there, like flesh and blood man in heaven with God the Father, standing as your representative pleading your case. Does that offend you? Would that offend you? Let's say you have people working for you and they were at the water cooler. Could you believe this guy believes there's a man in the sky? 
interceding for him? If that offends you, you find yourself with those Jews. Antagonistic to what Jesus is saying. It takes faith in Christ to believe and to confess Christ. The reason why many would be ashamed is because they don't really believe in him. They believe stuff about him. There's facts and things, nice things maybe, um, the identification of a profession of faith, uh, you know, but there's no genuine faith in Christ. Therefore, confessing him is, whoa, too much. I'm not going to do that. Because you do find him offensive. That's the issue. And Jesus says that the person who's not offended at him, with him, that is the person who is blessed. The person who is re- willing to receive Christ and to confess Christ as he is portrayed in the Bible. Think about what he says to John. He just quotes scripture to John. He says, these things that were in Isaiah, that's who I am. And if you're not offended, you're blessed. So when John received that, John the Baptist said, praise God, it's the Messiah. And three days later, he got his head chopped off. So, so first is that we must live by faith and not by sight. We must believe what the scriptures say. Next, the next thing, now looking at verse 62 and following, Jesus' works, what he accomplished, and his words are impossible for the world to receive. Listen to this. Listen to how Jesus puts it. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Now, um, I think most of you were probably, a good number of you were homeschooled, so you would understand that if you have a sentence that has an if, what are we missing? Then, right? And I'm not going to tell you what those are called, but if-then sentences are important. And there's an if here, but there's not a then. We can supply it, though. So we could read the question this way. What then if you, if you should see the Son of Man ascending where he was before? Would you then be offended? Or would you be offended then? Something like that. And the answer to the question really is no. No, we wouldn't be offended at all. If we saw Jesus going up, if, if for some strange reason, Jesus decided to show up here today, preach this sermon a lot better than I'm preaching it, and then the drop ceiling moved and the dome split open and we saw him going up to heaven, you'd believe every single word that, I, that he was preaching. Easily believe it. They, the Jews would have said, no, we wouldn't be offended at all at whatever you're saying to us because we asked you back in verse 30 to perform a sign. That's what we wanted, and you did it. And so now we're not offended, and we believe in you. Well, why does Jesus bring up the ascension in particular, though? And this, is, this is important. Now, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This is, a, I, this is a long section of text, uh, but, you know, don't grow weary. I, I'm going to read a long portion of, of, of Acts chapter 2, 
22 through 32. But the reason I'm doing it is to, sh- to sort of show you the importance of the ascension. Why, as Jesus is standing here before these people who are unbelievers, they, they really do not believe in him, they don't believe his words, they have no faith in him, why does he bring up this kind of question, this rhetorical question? And what is it about the ascension that is important? Well, this is Peter preaching. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, and as you yourself also know, him being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. So there, in a very small compass, Peter preaches the gospel. And Peter does this to a crowd that was hostile. These were the people who crucified Jesus. And he says to them, And there are no objections here, and no historical objections either. There are no Jews writing at this time saying, oh, Jesus, he was a huckster, because he wasn't. That's why Peter speaks with such boldness to a crowd of over 10,000. So he, he, he preaches the gospel in essence, and he says that God raised him from the dead. And now what he does is he's going to cite some Old Testament passages And these Old Testament passages are fulfilled by Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. So what he's doing is he's providing evidence. David said this thousands of years ago. Listen to the words. Verse 25, for David says concerning him. Remember, David was at least 14 generations before Jesus, if you look at uh, the genealogy in Matthew. I saw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, the decay of death. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. So Peter says, It was impossible for Christ to remain in the grave because David prophesied that he would never see corruption from this passage. Look at verse 29. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day. We could go, you know, open the tomb and pick up his bones and clack, clack, clack them together. We know where he is. He's not talking about himself. Therefore, verse 39, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise from, excuse me, from the uh, fruit of his body, he would raise up the Christ to sit in his throne. He foreseeing this, David foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. 
So why does Jesus bring up, uh, I got a little bit more to read, but why does Jesus bring up the ascension? Because it's, it's confirmation that he is the Christ, and it's confirmation that God's promises are fulfilled in him. He is truly the Messiah. So if you see me going up into heaven, would you then be offended? Absolutely not, because it would be confirmation that I'm the Messiah. Now, verse 33. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says of himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this man whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Amen. Amen. Right? His resurrection and ascension are a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises and confirmation of his person and work. That's what they are. So Jesus is saying, if you saw me going up into heaven, you wouldn't be offended. And they, would you, well, he asked the question, he says, would you be offended? And they said, they would say, no, not at all, because that's what we want. We want a sign. Would they be offended if they saw Jesus? Um, let me ask you. Think about this. Would they be offended if they saw Jesus going into heaven? Would they then believe? Now, let me give you an illustration. Let's say they're during the time after the resurrection, right? So like right after the resurrection, when, when the disciples are hiding, a band of desert dwellers comes into Jerusalem to buy and to trade. And, you know, they don't really know the language that well, so they can just sell stuff. So they go in, they sell a bunch of stuff, and they're leaving, you know, and they're several miles away from the place where Jesus is ascending into heaven. And one of them, you know, um, there's some flies on his camel, so he's looking back, whacking at the flies, and he looks back and he sees somebody going up in the sky. And he says to his friends, hey, stop the camels. Look at that. There's a Jewish guy on clouds, and it looks like he's just going up. Isn't that crazy? Would that guy be converted? No. That guy is not converted. He just saw Jesus going into the sky. Seeing the ascension does not make a person a believer. Just like, as Peter said at the beginning of his discourse, a man attested to you by God by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst. And as you yourself also know, he's speaking to a group of unbelievers. Jesus is, is, is saying to them, are you offended that I said you have to believe in me? I'm going to change the question into a statement now. Jesus asked a question about the ascension. In essence, what Jesus is saying is, if you saw me fly up into heaven, you'd still be offended. The flesh profits nothing. That's the next words he says. You see, if, the issue of faith is not give me facts. Give me historical records and evidence and let's go to, let's go to uh, the ancient Near East and, you know, with Indiana Jones and find the lost Ark of the Covenant and, and uh, then I'll believe in Jesus. That, that's not what faith is about. 
Now that's not to say that these things cannot be verified. But you put the cart before the horse if you say to God, you got to show me evidence if you want me to believe. It doesn't work that way. So, then Jesus says in verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, seeing the ascension, profits nothing. Men are dependent on the Word of God and the Spirit of God to impart life so that they can believe. That's the issue. Ultimately, that's the issue. That's why Jesus follows up now and he says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And they could be taken this way. The words that I speak to you are spiritual words and they are life-giving words. What you guys need is not to see more miracles. You don't need David Blair Jesus doing all kinds of card tricks and swallowing swords. You don't need that. You need to believe what I'm telling you. That's what you need. Paul puts it this way, right? Tersely. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Where does faith come from? The word preached. James puts it this way. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creation. What does God do? By, and here he uses an, um, sort of a, a metaphor, right? He says that we are first fruits. How do we become first fruits? Through the preaching of the word. Peter does the same thing in 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25. So Jesus says to them, the issue is not more miracles. The issue is, is not more facts. The issue is faith. You must believe in me. You must, in particular, believe my words. And, you know, that doesn't mean that you believe my words. What you need to do is you need to open your Bible, read your Bible, and believe your Bible. Now, verse 64 but there are some of you who do not believe. And that was the issue. Some of you who are here don't believe me. Therefore, you're offended. Of course you're offended. Wow, this guy's long-winded. I can't believe they have a service so long and they read and they sit down and they sing and it's hot and it's, the water smells like eggs. And right There's all of these offenses. The issue is you don't believe. Right? That's why you're angry and hangry and all of those things. The issue is an issue of faith. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now, um, uh, John gives us a parenthetical statement. Look at it in verse 64. It's this statement. He says, For Jesus knew from the beginning whom they were who did not believe and who would betray him. That is a parenthetical statement put in there by the author which is help, it's a helpful statement. But if we leave it for a second and uh, skip to verse 65, right back to Jesus' words, we understand the remedy. 
So that if a person is sitting here today and is thinking, you know what, I'm pretty offended with Jesus and I've been offended with him for years. What do I do? Well, Jesus tells us. So, read it this way. Skip the parenthetical statement. We'll come back to it. It's part of God's word. We need it. But just skip it for a second and follow Jesus' train of thought. In verse 64, he says, But there are some of you who do not believe. Therefore, verse 65, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. You see what Jesus is saying? Is Some of you here don't believe, but I told you several verses ago in verse 37 and verses 44 through 45 that it's the Father who draws. It's the Father who gives life. So if you're sitting here today and you're hostile to to the message that I'm preaching, Jesus is saying this to his crowd, plead to the Father. Ask the Father that he might freely bestow upon you the gift of faith. And that's the language that Jesus uses. He uses the language of a gift. He says, Therefore I have said to you, that no one can come to me unless it has been granted. The noun form there is used by Paul in Ephesians when he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So it is God's right to grant faith. That was our, our third point. So then what must we do? If you're sitting here today and you have hostility in your heart and you've had hostility in your heart for years, let's say, what do you do? Plead to the Father. Plead with the Father. Ask Him to open your eyes, to soften your heart. Ask Him to enable you to believe in His Son. And we'll stop there. Next week we'll pick up at verse 66. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we know with great confidence that Christ's word is offensive. Now, we don't have to make it offensive. We don't have to be rude, crude, or disrespectful. But objectively, Lord, uh, the world cannot receive it. The world cannot understand it. So we ask, Lord, for those who are here who do not believe, that the Father would see fit, Lord, to grant them faith, that he would work by his Spirit and with the Word to impart faith to those who are sitting here today. For those of us who have believed in the Son, Lord, we thank you for this unspeakable gift. And we ask that you would help us, Lord, to live in light of that rich blessing. In Christ's name we pray, amen.